0: The day of a protest that kicks off, there's a narrative that's put out. The police briefing that's repeated by the government, almost always it's untrue.
1: It's numbers. When people are angry, they start doing things and they start pushing back. Hopefully, there'll be much larger demos that make it much more difficult for the police to act in this way.
0: We've probably got the worst home secretary we've had in 200 years, but we absolutely challenge the idea we live in a police state we Mm. can't do anything. and People are doing amazing things every day which are making a difference.
2: Welcome to the Verso podcast. My name is Ben Smoke. I am a journalist and an activist. I'm the politics editor at Huck magazine and was one of the Stanford 15. I'm here today uh, with Matt Foote and Morag Livingston. The authors have charged How the Police Tried to Suppress Protest, an Urgent Investigation into Modern British Policing. We're here today to discuss the book and how it pertains to the wider modern political context. So. Hello. Hello, thank right, hello. you. Thanks so much for being here. I read this pretty much in one sitting last night and um, it made me very angry, <laughs> very <laughs> very furious. But I think it's such a beautiful, um, yeah, well researched but, but incredibly like well thought out book. It, the way that it captures the spirit of being on the police lines, you know, watching them charge towards you, watching them drive horses, cars, shields dogs at you, it really sort of like gets you there, I could feel my heart going. And The book begins by exploring the Public Order Manual of Tactical Options and Related Matters, which could you maybe kind of explain what that is and why it's important? In
1: 1981, after the Brixton riots um, and the uh, national riots, the government commissioned a report by Lord Scarman. And his report recommended that there was um, more community policing um, around protest. However, behind the scenes, the government um, and the police were combining to have some um, more paramilitary powers that were developed for the police. And this culminated in a a manual. Um, And I first heard of the manual when I was making a documentary about three industrial disputes. And in speaking about that um, with um, people who had been involved in disputes in Wapping and the miners' strike, they spoke quite a lot about this secret manual that had first been come to light during Orgreave and used at Orgreave for the first time. And then when some of the miners were charged with riot, uh, Barrister Michael Mansfield um, asked some questions and one of the officers involved disclosed that there was this manual. And there were rumours that it had been used at Wapping and that existed and when I spoke to a barrister about it and the importance of the manual um, and the merging of the lines between police operational independence on the one hand um, and um, the government on the other, she said to me that there were rumours that the Home Office had signed this document off which would have breached that operational independence. And at the same time, she also sent me an article in The Guardian that was written by Gareth Pierce, who is a solicitor um, who actually Matt works with now. Yeah. Um, and she had prophesied that the police had, behind closed doors, changed the law without Parliament. Because that's the main thing about this manual. It went through Home Office, it went through the government, and, it went, and the police developed it without it going through Parliament, without it going through legal scrutiny. Um, and then in the fullness of time, those archives are put into the National Archive. So having been told about this manual, I was quite curious about it. Went looking to see whether or not Willie Whitelaw had, the Home Secretary had signed it off or not. And in the process of that, we discovered that he'd signed, not only signed it off, but the Home Office had been involved um, in the development of it and that they even had a celebrated drinks party to celebrate the creation of this 500 page mm-hmm. Document of paramilitary powers, and that's actually where the book starts with the party. They love yeah. a party. They, they do love a party. A, they love a party. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that's one of the things that really struck me about that whole passage um, was the, you know, how secretive it, it, it was. It still is. You know, like part of the only reason that part of it is in kind of the public eye is, as you said, Michael Mansfield. But then Tony Benn getting rowdy. In Parliament, and you know, making sure that it went into the Parliamentary Library. My first big protest was the student protest in 2010, and by that point, sort of 30 years on, we knew, we know about all of these things, right? But this idea, I, you know, I, so I was reading this book, and I think it's um, it was Warrington, um, where you know some of these tactics sort of appeared for the first time, and, and the shock and the terror. Um, and I can only imagine, you know, because you kind of, I think what was for, for me and a, a huge number of people of my generation quite eye-opening was the, the horror of the, the police and, and, you know, and the, the fury of their tactics. But we kind of half knew, you know, I grew up in working class communities you know, that were extraordinarily over-policed, it wasn't sort of completely out of the blue. Whereas I kind of can't imagine what it must have been like to just be there for a picket and then suddenly you've got cops Turning all of the media lights off and driving Land Rovers at you. So, I just wonder whether you can kind of talk about. So, you, you interviewed like so many people that were there and, and you know, who gave these incredible testimonies. Can you talk about what it was like for them and sort of like you know, the, the feedback that you got?
1: I mean, certainly at, at Warrington, you know, Tony Burke, Alan Royston, it's still very vivid in their minds that. You know, Alan wasn't there when the lights were switched off because um, he'd been 15 hours on the picket already. So you know, went home. But the people were there in solidarity for him and five other people. But Tony Burke, you know, says just says it was a shock. You know, we knew that the police would do something, but not go that far. Mm. And that the fact, as you're saying, you know, this this is sanctioned by government. This is developed behind closed doors. It's it was really a seismic shift in the way that protest was treated in this country. Yes, there's always been right back to Peterloo, Peter, Peter your know, horses going into crowds, etc, etc. But this is sanctioned. Mm. And this is in a manual, you know, that these are the options and the tactics. Um, but certainly, you know, for Whopping people at Whopping people at Warrington, it's still, I feel definitely speaking to them. It's still very much there, and when they're talking about it, they're taken back. And we, you know, as people that interview them, we have to be very careful because, as a duty of care to them, because it is bringing back these memories. It's still very raw, and part of that is because it's unresolved. They don't have their truth is very different from the truth that's often in the media, Mm. and therefore they can't reconcile that. They're vilified before, if not during, a dispute, and after a dispute, and. Therefore, that sense of um, injustice is still very strong and very present, even today, 40 years on.
2: I was going to say, it's still very much a a kind of live issue, particularly with um, Orgreaves in it. And, you know, this sort of like, I mean, you detail in the book and I feel like it's quite, it's fairly sort of widely known about the, the BBC moving mad and, you know, cutting about with the footage. But can you maybe sort of, for people that maybe aren't familiar with that? talk about that and and talk about this demand for justice on it.
1: The Orgreave Truth and Justice campaign, which is still running, is looking for an inquiry into Orgreave as to to what happened, not least in the policing. Um, but with the BBC, what happened was the footage um was taken. The ITN or ITV also have the same footage, um but the BBC um cut the edit so that it looked like the Miners attacked the police first, and then the police responded because you are um, able to act in self defence if you're a policeman. So it's an equal, um, apparently. It's, <laughs> uh, it's meant to be an equal um, response to you know what what you're receiving. Um, but the BBC switched the footage so that it looked like the miners were attacking the police, um, and that is the the um, truth has, was given to that lie during the Orgreave trial of miners for Riot, which subsequently collapsed. But in addition to that, when we looked at this more closely, um, we could see it was not only that, it was the narrative, it was the language used, um, it was the photograph behind the presenter in the BBC studios, all of that vilified these people who were just fighting for their jobs and their communities and their livelihoods and to stop them being destroyed mm-hmm. um, and that narrative has continued with many people today you ask about the miners strike and it's the miners are bad mm-hmm. and the police were good and that you know that narrative we need to challenge it and hopefully in the book is serving to do that throughout is challenging narratives that have been established over time
0: one thing that's really important to understand about the manual is it was the preserve of the Chief Officers. Only the Chief Officers could see the manual. Mm-hmm. And so that's how secret it was, that the Association of Chief Police Officers, only they could see it. And so that's how it's enforced from the very top, with the troops under the ground not knowing exactly what the rules are that they're being, that they're being asked to apply. Um, and that's one of the reasons why there needs to be an inquiry into the Orgreave because they've never, they've had so many opportunities to tell the truth about this manual, but they covered up. So in the trial, um, the officer who was in charge at Orgreave called Clement said that the manual didn't, imply, didn't apply to industrial um, struggles, to industrial disputes, which is completely untrue now that we have more of the manual. Mm-hmm. And so people need to know what was the psychology? That it was sanctioned by white law secretly. That, they, there wasn't a fair, a fair playing field, and a, excuse me, pun for the Orgreave, mm-hmm. but the, there, was, there was those miners going into that field just were up against something that nobody knew about that had been sanctioned secretly by the Home Office. And none of that has been properly held to account. Mm-hmm. And if you don't hold that to account, what happened in Orgreave, the, the, the problem just carries on. And that's part of the reason of doing the book, is the pattern mm. of different ways that the police use excessive, inappropriate, brutal force or don't tell the truth because they're not held to account on the, on the big event that happened mm-hmm. before. And that, that's part of the reason why we wrote the book.
1: Yeah. And if you watch about the footage, it's quite stark. You know the police are there in their riot gear. They've got their six foot, you know, their long shields and their brown shields. So battens and round shields were used for the first time at, at Orgreave. And the miners are there in their shorts and t-shirts and lying around. And they're off to Asda to get, you know, another couple of drinks and <laughs> um, and then come back to to have the second wave or the third wave of the horses going in.
2: The narrative that's spun around of the police needing to be protected their their time and time again in most recently the Kill the Bill um, riots in, in Bristol where you know, they were like, oh yeah, this, this policeman had a punctured lung and another one like broke several arms and, and all of this sort of like stuff, which obviously then becomes untrue and it was just like one of them was winded and the other one had sort of like smacked his arm on a door or something. But it's then used as the basis kind of for the police to enact this force. And people never really sort of take a second to think, well, actually, hold on, this is A hugely sort of paramilitarized force. They have these huge shields. They have armor. They have truncheons. They have helmets. Against, you know, in that instance, miners in shorts and t-shirts in Bristol, hippies dancing around dustbins, playing drum and bass. You know, these people are not have not come for war. They've come to fight for their rights. And I think that that's often very much lost. Um, I think one thing I wanted to kind of go back to, and one thing that really struck me, and I think is really very important about that report and kind of goes through the entirety of the book and the entirety of the contemporary history of the increased policing of protest is this idea of this sort of overnight switch um, about what reasonable force is Mm -hmm. and that to me is I think so seismically important because obviously as you mentioned the police have been Shits throughout the entirety of their history. <laughs>
1: I'm like
2: <laughs> <laughs> be paraphrasing ever so slightly.
1: Um, <laughs> Carry on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know, they there is a very long and potted history of the police m- abusing their power. Um, however, this sort of universal ability to be able to inflict the most extreme. You know, and you know, life-threatening and in some cases life-taking force, all kind of comes back to this one report, and I think that's so. And you know, so many people don't know about that.
0: I think they're constantly being held to account in different ways, um, and exposed for what they're doing. Um, and the the hills, I mean, Hillsborough's you know not a protest in that way but it took 23 years but the truth came out Mm -hmm. and I absolutely convinced that we can get there with all grief and with other things I don't think we live in a police state in that way but I do think it's it's a constant problem what you say that the, the day of a protest that kicks off or the next day there's a narrative that's put out that's a police briefing that's repeated by the government and almost always it's untrue and it's it, with the passage of time we can prove it's untrue and then there's a sort of cover-up of what actually happened so that one of the ways they get away with it is they put things into the long grass so after the poll tax um, Thatcher herself was sent a letter by someone who describes himself as a sort of liberal that describes exactly what went wrong on the poll tax protest she hands it to the police who are the very people who created the problem by charging horses into people who are just sitting down in Downing Street um, and it goes off for a year for a review and then they print a summary of the review so the truth n- is never comes out properly and with the passage of time we can shine a light on it much better because of FOI and because of the National Archive but we have... One thing I hope that people would take from this book is that whenever there's a protest that kicks off, do not believe the narrative (laughs) that comes out that day because more often than not, it will be untrue. And we need journalists on the ground, um, protesters to fight for the truth. But I think you can win certain battles. Within all that, it's not like one way. Even within the people who are charged, there are victories in court like Orgreave 95 people charged with riots. They won their trial. That's part of history. And it was proved that they were fitting evidence together that, 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 that you know, in a way that the police officer should, should never do but no one's been held to account for. Mm-hmm. So I think we can have victories, but we the problem with this story is that they have also got away with it so many times. And so that's why Orgreave inquiry also, my bugbear is uh, David Cameron needs to apologise for what he said mm-hmm. after the 2010 protest. Mm-hmm. What he said was a lie that police officers had been pulled from their horses. No officer was pulled from their horse. Absolute lie. Mm-hmm. It fed a narrative that fed led to the prosecution of two brothers, the Hilliard brothers, who were eventually acquitted and then won damages from the police because it was untrue, it was proven to be untrue. So that was a victory for them, but it came at a cost to that family over a long period of time, going through very difficult legal battles, those comes at a cost. But the, the lesson from that is what one of the Hilliard brothers say, is that you've got to hold the police to account, otherwise it's going to keep happening.
2: One thing I wanted to talk a little bit about was some of the, the similarities and some of the sort of repeat, as you say, it's, it's a pattern and it's sort of going, on and on and on. Um, and with Orgreave, you know, people charged with riot after the Kill the Bill protests last year in Bristol. People were charged with riot. Unfortunately, the story didn't quite repeat in the same way. And I think it's now 14, 15 people who are now in prison for various different riot offences, arson, etc. Um, what can we learn from what happened in at Orgreave? What happened whopping Wapping? And, and all of these other kind of Struggles that you document in the book for these contemporary struggles, how can we prepare ourselves better when we kind of enter into this, for one of a better word, field of combat?
0: Well, I think it's very important for people to know their history because you, you can pick up things and different ways of approaching things. And if you if you're sceptical of the police, you're going to. Approach every issue in a, in a better way. So what I find sometimes, and it's, it's bound to happen, with new movements, that they think they're the first person who who've been <laughs> on that protest or who have been through that experience. And that's bound to happen. But actually they can learn an incredible amount from what battles people have had before. And that was a very important reason why we mm-hmm. wrote the book. For young people who think maybe they're a Black Lives Matter activist, that they think they're the first person who's come across the police, that there's, a, there's an echo. And if they encapsulate that history, it will help fight the next battle. I mean, if they can say, "Well, you did this thirty years ago; and you shouldn't have been doing it then," I think it makes it stronger. Um, I also think the book—I mean, this is not really answering your question—but relates to people who were part of those protests because when sometimes. Um, you're at a protest, and you don't actually know what's gone wrong or how it's gone wrong. You know, Welling was a very confusing day for people who were there. It was only the people at the front who could really see what was going on. But with the passage of time, we can help explain to those people what actually went on. So it, it's for people. It's written for people today who are part of new movements, but it's also written for people who are part of these protests to understand what actually happened, yeah. and but for people who haven't been on in protest to understand what mm-hmm. the police get up to.
1: But I remember the day that, because Matt researched, um, Welling because you were there, mm. and you didn't know what was going on, and I remember you phoning me on that day and saying, this is what I found, I'm not going to reveal it. But, <laughs> no. but you know, and 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 half of me was thinking, but you were there. Mm. And then, of course, then you realise, the more you research and the more that we did, that not, you don't see everything that's going on a protest and what's happening and how the police are reacting and, yeah. and things so I think that was a, a penny drop moment for me mm. in that actually people on these protests don't know at all and therefore added a, a level for the book um, in that but um, it's a it's a great find so well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also the, you know, going back to your the reasonable force thing I think we, uh, been thinking about this quite a lot recently, because, and particularly with the introduction of uh, new powers against peaceful protest. You know, the reasonable force is actually only relevant if the crowd acted first. And we have to be very careful, I think, uh, um, to recognise that You know, a lot of these protests mm were, the violence was not instigated by the protesters, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, but the narrative is violent protesters, bad protesters, and particularly around May Day, they spent months, two, 2000 mm. and, what, when was the media? 2001. 2000, 2001, you yeah, around the May Day protests, they, in 2001, they spent quite a lot of time to the extent that the chief um, police officer met with the media to kind of say these, this is going to be a violent protest. And then um, introduce kettling against a non-violent crowd, so we have to. I think we have to be careful about the reasonable force, um, looking at that in the context of what is what is protest and is it peaceful or or not.
2: Yeah, so I guess on that point, um, something that I've been reflecting on quite a lot recently is who brings the violence, and also how what we define violence as. So there's this bit in the book where you talk about the um, protest in Hyde Park in 1994. Against the criminal justice bill, yeah. smashed in. <laughs> um, that's a lot of information, <laughs> and um, you know the the violence from the police on that day, and you you compare it to a similar protest that happens in Manchester, where the police decided not to engage in the exact same way, and there wasn't any violence, and that was it was really interesting reading that because as like I said earlier, you know we I was uh, reporting on the streets in London for. The Black Lives Matter demo, and it was, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the day that we were charged with horses. It was when the comrade traffic light took out the cop that was riding down, and you know they did it in. It was horrendous circumstances. It was torrential rain. I, rem, I it was so bad that I remember I filmed it, and I couldn't upload the footage of it because the rain was so strong that my my phone would not work. You know, that was how sort of powerful this rainstorm was, and they decided that it was a great idea to just canter down Whitehall. And, you know, people got hurt, and they sort of said that the reason that it happened is because somebody flew, threw a flare over the street, over the kind of gate at Downing Street. If you want to say that that's violence, I mean, there's a, I think there's a whole other podcast, there's a whole other book. but. You then kind of compare that with what happened in Manchester that weekend, and I think across the weekend 15,000 people came out on demonstrations in the centre of Manchester. Greater Manchester Police decided to police it in a very different way to the Metropolitan Police, completely stepped back, just let people go out and be angry, make themselves known. There were no arrests. And I think it's exactly the same thing, obviously we now know what happened after Colston. But on the actual day when there were 10,000 people in Bristol and the statue of Colston was pulled down and put into the river, the police made an active decision not to engage in a, you know, in a public order way, and there was no violence, there was no injuries, there were no arrests. And it's to me, it's so. I think this book is so important for recognizing that that is a pattern. And obviously, we know when we're on when we're on those lines and when we're looking at the police we know that it's them that swings first. We know that, and they will use the tiniest little, as I said, you know, these people are in helmets and things they can't take a bottle being thrown at them. If you've never been to a gig before, like this, <laughs> this is just simply not a thing. And so we know that they use the tiniest little provocation to bring the power, but that to me was a really interesting moment. Have you seen lots in your research, did you see lots of instances of that? Was that a pattern that kind of continued through this you know, 40 year history?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the Criminal Justice Act um, in 1994, the, the bill, the, the protest against the bill in Hyde Park, I mean, it's an extraordinary scene because all that the protesters are trying to do uh, amongst all the issues that they were bringing, because the Act brought in loads of attacks on, on our rights, the main thing was, was to have a party, it was to have a rave in the Hyde Park. And so there was a whole... Set to because they wanted to take in a sound system into the park, which had been allowed to travel up to the park by the police, and it led to to them then sending in horses to a young crowd who were just literally wanting to have a party. I mean, it's extraordinary. And but at the time, of course, they said that the crowd was all violent, and you know, it's the usual narrative, and uh, the policing had been perfect, Um, and. What was very enjoyable was in researching that chapter was finding the police report that was not to be published to the public <laughs> at the time. <laughs> the, the guy who was doing the investigation into the policing was specifically told, this will not be published, i.e. you can tell the truth. And he tells a completely different story about how the policing was, was just chaotic and completely incompetent. Uh, and there was no reason to, really, to send in horses or have these charges from the south to the north. I mean, one of the motives for that was that the Criminal Justice Act was bringing in a lot of police powers, so they had their own motive. But the rather smug officer in Manchester Uh, took a very different view and decided the police were not going to engage with the party. There was a party in the park up there and people tidied up their rubbish and went home. No one, Not a single arrest, I think. Mm. You know, so there's always an element within the police that takes a more sensible line. I think one of the questions might be, why does that not win out? You know, why does that not um, hold out? And often there's another motive that's going on in Mm. the background where they might want to create some... The, the interesting thing I, th- I, th- I hope people find from the different chapters is it's not always the same way that the police suppress dissent in these protests. Sometimes it's sheer brute force, like they did at Beanfield, but other times it's more subtle and it's trying to undermine the protest um, in, in little ways that become big ways or protect themselves, their own, their own reputation. But they never tell the truth about how the thing starts. That's what I, I think comes That's out of all the chapters. That's fascinating for us as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: As the, um, what was the policing bill, was now you know passed into law, is now an act, unfortunately, as that was going through Parliament, there were a whole number of senior police, either current or ex-officials, who came out publicly and said, we, we don't actually want this? Like we don't actually need this. And that always struck me as very strange because my experience of the police has overwhelmingly been the Metropolitan Police who are I think in a kind of um, often, not completely, but often in very much a league of their own where you know, violence and uh, shithousery is concerned. Um, and so to me, it's sort of like, yeah, of course they want this. But of course they want more reasons to be able to bat on us. But the fact that all of these police officers didn't, and then all of this other stuff that was going on with, with BLM, and that you know, the active and sort of like, as you say, yeah, sensible policing decisions, really sort of took me back a bit. And I wondered if you sort of like had any thoughts on why like why these police officers came out and said that, and, and
0: to what end? What we're told is that the police are there to, to solve crime, you know, that's their main role. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I, I question in general whether that is mm-hmm. their main role. But it, it, if it, if we just take that at face value, then police officers who, who believe in that, I want to focus on that, you know, rather than... Um, uh, uh, micromanaging anyone who goes near a protest and spending all their time on that. Um, and so I think there is a bit of a division um, that comes up time and again, but I, I think, well, particularly with the Met, as you mentioned, it seems to be that the, the aggressive anti-protest line wins out. Um, I, I think it's... But, but it, it's, always in the, it's always there, actually. I mean, we look at the beginning of the Extinction Rebellion they were allowed to protest for quite a period of time in Oxford Circus, and you had an officer come on on the telly, I remember it was hilarious, he said, um, the problem is that these protesters are peaceful. You know, <laughs> he wanted, <laughs> what he wanted was some <laughs> altercation, that he had the excuse that they could go in and clear the crowd, because, but they were all peaceful and he couldn't find an excuse to clear them. Um, and then, of course, they came up with all sorts of unlawful ways of doing it, including a London-wide ban in the later protests. Uh, which, which was <laughs> going to the other extreme, will just stop you protesting at all in London, which was, of, which was found to be clearly unlawful because it's not how the law is interpreted. You're supposed to come to the scene and see if there's significant disruption, not decide that no-one can ever protest. So, so there's all sorts of people who then had a, a civil action against the police. So there's a constant tension between pretending that we have the right And and actually, what that means in reality is they don't really want people to protest at all. I mean, that's the reality.
2: We're doing this on the day of the Queen's Speech with uh, a whole new raft of legislation that's been announced. A lot of the legislation that was attempted to be sort of snuck into the policing bill at the last minute in the House of Lords, which the House of Lords batted back, so making lock-ons illegal. Uh, Adding new search, stop and search powers for the police, um, making it illegal to protest on major designated transport routes um, at various different sort of like, I believe oil refineries and things like that are included. Obviously, we know that these are very specifically designed to stop um, demonstrations from people like Extinction Rebellion, just stop oil, insulate Britain, to a lesser extent, airport excursions like my own. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Working with the police is certainly not the way that I want to phrase it, but is there some is there some ground to be won there with these police officers who simply don't want to? Because, as you say, this a lot of the legislation that's just come in with the policing bill or act, um, a lot of it's a lot of paperwork, right? Like, a lot of it is, you know, they now have to go to a thing and decide whether or not they're going to put in a noise thing and what that looks like and how that, and obviously that's going to be challenged under human rights legislation, so they're then going to have to do that assessment and all of this sort of like new levels of policing, which are going to just make it, off, up to a certain extent, unworkable. Do you think that there's room there for part of the movement to engage with that and to try and bring it down from that angle?
0: Absolutely. Uh, I think these are all discretionary. There's a lot of discretion in the phrases uh, uh, within the sections that come in. Um, and. How that discretion is used and how the police use their resources is always, in a big way, comes down to politics and comes down to the size of protests. So, um, I'll give you a personal e- example, which was, I, I remember one of the big Stop the War protests that the police suddenly announced just before the protests that they wanted the march to start from much further back than where the organisers did, and it would have a less effect. And we had a meeting, I I was asked to come as a lawyer and uh, I think there were, uh, Jeremy Corbyn came, you know, so there was pressure put on them not to do that and they backed down. So I think depending on the size of the protest, the strength of it, the strength of feeling, I'm not saying you can always persuade them, but there is room to argue that the way they use their discretion needs to be done fairly and that they shouldn't be using it a certain way. The problem we have on the other side is that they've got so many powers now to use their discretion in different ways. That's the frightening side. I think the worst thing about this thing that I picked up from, not on top of it, was just coming in today, but is that the idea that 12-month sentencing has come in for protesters. It seems to me, from my knowledge of criminal, I've been a criminal lawyer for, I don't know, 25 years, that that seems to be one of the few if only offences for which you can go to prison for 12 months. Uh, uh, Now, how that works in reality is that a magistrate is deciding your case and deciding what sentence you get. So it's an attack on the right to jury trials, which have been very important in protecting uh, protesters over the years, student protesters, you know, all the way back uh, to Orgreave. Uh, now the magistrate has the power to send a protester to prison for 12 months for locking on or something. That's, that's very frightening. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, for protest to work, it needs to be effective. It needs to actually... Um, most protests that's going to be effective is going to be disruptive in some way. We didn't win the vote by people just asking for it. That's the myth that they create in our education system. It, people won the vote by protesting the Chartists over many years and, and protesting vigorously and the suffragettes a thousand suffragettes went to prison nobody no, nobody thinks about that they just think about Hollywood film and people being all nice it's actually it's mary poppins it, it 's yes, <laughs> about it was about radical action that led women to get the vote so you're you 're cutting off that ability if you 're then giving the power for magistrates to send people to prison for 12 months. But I, I, I stress, that the size and the organisation of things can make a difference to how they apply the law. Yeah, definitely. Um, I probably just one last example is at Saltley Gates, um, I can't remember the, the name of the title, but someone came in that no one had ever heard of, someone was given a title to close the gates and say that you've won, because the thing was so big, There were, there were 20,000, 30,000 people had, had congregated in the north of Birmingham there in support of, of that protest, that they just couldn't police it. And so they won. And so size matters. Now you <tell> <laughs> I'm <spent it> <laughs> rethinking
2: my entire life now.
1: I'm going to cut through that <laughs> <laughs> but the um just on both on uh, the discretionary powers you know one of the things the book shows is that the senior officers use those discretionary powers in a way that um doesn't necessarily marry with what exactly what you would expect with a police officer you know they 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 fall on the side of whichever, you know, government of the day, but I totally agree with Matt, the larger the protest, the less they seem to mm. use the discretionary powers poorly.
2: I think in terms of the government of the day, um, what I found quite interesting about this is obviously a huge number of these very sort of like fundamental, foundational pieces of legislation and uh, policy that have been built upon over the last 40 years to create the hellscape within which we live in now were brought in under the tory government and then you had new labor come in and do nothing about it Um, i think it says in the book like new labor brought in a criminal a new criminal law for every single day they were in government and just actively decided not to and obviously brought in some other fairly heinous pieces of legislation and made some other fairly heinous policy decisions, both foreign and domestic. And you you kind of mention uh what happened at May Day and various other things. Is was there a difference? Was there a difference in policing in those years um, to what was happening in the eighties and what we've seen in the last sort of
1: They I think they developed and built on mm. you know what they you know, nineteen eighty one Scarman says Community policing. Publicly, Home Office and the um, Home Secretary is agreeing with that. Behind closed doors, they're creating a new something else. And as they test, you know, the 1983 uh, first manual says that they can, the police can incapacitate protesters just for being there. That disappears from the 1987. Manual and it's rephrased in a different way, saying you know don't hit people around the head, et cetera, et cetera, because of what they've learned from the miners' strike. So there's a there's a definite narrative that they're developing rather than changing um, throughout. And then it comes to eventually there, you know, and often. Um, the Home Secretary is saying you know, that they're working within their powers, etc. But what we're showing in the book as well is that what's in the manual, they're going outside of that, mm-hmm. on top of that. And then I think the classic example, which you can talk more about, is when they get to 2001, they create something that they are denying exists, which is kettling.
0: There's a fairly farcical thing with the police where they, they won't accept the word kettling. You know, if you say to them, um, as a friend of mine who's a lawyer has done in, in an official meeting, you know, what about this kettling, we say, we don't know what you're talking about. You know, there's, it's like you've you've mentioned a word that no one's ever thought of. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a bit in the book where Karen Buck is, is cross-examining uh, the, a chief officer about that and saying, well, are you saying there's been no change in the way that people have been contained for seven hours a <laughs> in, <laughs> in protests where they weren't before, and they sort of well, we've had containment forever, which is not the, not true, and and it's not recognizing reality.
1: Well, they've had containment; they've not had kettling, because yeah. they do have containment in the manual, but you're allowed out.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a different. I think what's important to understand with New Labour is is a whole is a, a bit in the book that Morag um, Morag comes from a, a sort of corporate background originally and so she got very focused on the research of the the how the organization acpo you know how it has developed as a company um and it's extraordinary that it you know <laughs> you, you can give the figures but yeah. it's extraordinary how it's this little chess club and now it's this it, it is mm-hmm. millions of pounds of, of back here. and blair basically gave acpo everything they asked for that's why all these laws that came in, and um, and basically refers to the protesters before the May Day in 2001 as terrorists, essentially. Um, so he didn't stop anything that had gone before, and he added to it. Mm-hmm. And he gave them the confidence to invent new strategies that mean that if you go on a protest now, you are at risk of being mm-hmm. held for seven hours without a toilet without water. Um, uh, and that that's a real danger.
1: Basically, when the Association of Chief Police Officers, who publicly... Um, it is described that this manual belongs to, even though it was developed with the Home Office, they started off effectively, as Matt said, as a chess club. You know, that... They were... Or your garden... You know, your your allotment gardening thing. That's, that's the power that they had. They could look after the members, and under... Um, Prior to that, the government, and particularly a, a senior civil servant, Sir Brian Coobin, he helped progress them, made them, you know, more national, if you like, um, even though we don't have a national police force, he made them, you know, national. And they developed over time, and by the time we get to Blair, they're worth probably about 200,000 pounds. By the end of the Blair years, they are worth, they, or they have revenue, rather, of 19.8 million pounds. Um, and they have grown within that time, and they've moved from this chess club to in their accounts. Because I find this fascinating. <laughs> Not everyone does. I do accept that. <laughs> <I know you're... laughs> we have had a number of discussions, but it's in the book.
2: <laughs> I think it's very yeah. interesting. I also <laughs> spend a lot of time looking at accounts for journalism stuff, and yeah. I probably don't find it quite as interesting <laughs> as you. <laughs> at the glee on your face right now, but. <laughs> It's good that I just love it yeah.
1: but when I found it is it was very satisfying <laughs> when I put those bits of stickies together and went, oh well, actually uh anyway, it's ninety they've changed their accounts to be a legally constituted um kind of company and in partnership with government and this is an organization that is meant to be separate from mm. everything and in their you know Official documents—they're in partnership with government—and I, I've, I've, you know, that, find that fascinating. That that's where they've come from, mm-hmm. from there to there over, you know, two decades
2: maybe. I guess it's sort of what you know—the one of the major themes about the book and why I think it's so important is tracking this huge explosion over 40 years of you know, the militarisation of the police, but also the sort of co-option of the police. For these various different sort of heinous draconian authoritarian <laughs> bents of whichever person is in the home office or in Downing street at that time, and it is as you say really important to like recognize so many of these patterns um, and I kind of wanted to to try and draw it all together somehow mm-hmm. by adding in some hope if I can mm-hmm. because I feel like hope is important it's really important to like recognize our history to recognize what's gone before. And as you say, like the number of protests, I mean, I was extraordinarily guilty of it when I was out in uh, parliament square in 2010. I was like, I'm the only person that's ever done this before. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fight a good fight for all of you. This was like 18 years old and ready to go. Um, but like now, yeah, when I was on, uh, on the black lives matter demos in, um, 2020, um, I watched the kids, who were probably my age when I'd been on the student thing, to do the exact same things that we did, take the exact same roads and get kettled exactly the same way that we did, get battered in exactly the same way. It is so important to learn that. Um, but we do face a very different situation now mm-hmm. than even we did in 2010. You know, we face a, um, a government that has a huge majority in parliament, one that's just pushed through a whole myriad of... Um, horrendous pieces of, of legislation, whether it's the policing bill, the borders bill, um, the JR bill, the elections bill. They've now just announced a whole nother raft and they're gonna go after the Human Rights Act. Is there hope? Is there yes. hope? And what, and what is it and how do we win? Very big question, sorry.
1: Well, I'll let you do the second bit. <laughs> but um, I think definitely there's hope. You see that coming together. I mean, arguably in 2010, you know, things stopped for a while. So there wasn't a decade of mass protests that arguably turned violent. So arguably it worked what they were trying to do. And then all these movements came about in a different form. And I think one of the interesting... Um, Demos in in the book is the G8 in Scotland where they reform. You know, there's been these mass protests and then everybody splits up, and that works for a while. And then the police come back and do something different, so it doesn't back into mass protests. But um, I think, as Matt said earlier, and you can pick up from there. But it's numbers. We need people to, um, you know, I'm very heartened that you were angry by the book because when people are angry, they start doing things and they start pushing back. And therefore, hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll be much larger demos that make it much more difficult for the police to act in this way.
0: We've probably got the worst home secretary we've had in 200 years or so. You know, I mean, she's absolutely, she detests on protest. She absolutely detests them. But um, what the book is also about is the power of protest. Yeah. So we, we, we absolutely challenge the idea we live in a police state or we Mm -hmm. can't do anything. And people are doing amazing things every day. Uh, There are all sorts of wonderful creative protests uh, which are making a difference. I mean, the Extinction Rebellion have definitely put climate change way up the agenda through what they've done. And so every day, protest does make a difference. And what I would point to is the poll tax protests because Thatcher seemed all-powerful, seemed like she was going to go on forever, nothing could topple her. And the, that protest led to the end of Thatcher. She, said she spoke on the day of the protest, she went to Cheltenham um, and said, I've not come to Cheltenham to retire. And five, six months later, she was retiring because the fallout from the protest was so big. And the first thing that John Major's government did was to put Heseltine in place to get rid of the poll tax. You know, the whole thing was just toxic. Mm. And that was down to enormous... I mean, I remember being... I lived on an estate at that time, and there was a, there was a great... You know, was a, there were organisations on estates and all over the country. It was mass organisation, local organisation. It was absolutely wonderful. And it all came together on one day. You know, about 200,000 people in a space they never should have been put in by the police. Um, so... It's not just the big things that I don't want to yeah, sort of suggest, yeah. or unless you're doing the big thing, you can't do anything. That's not true. Little things are winning every day. But organisation and coming together uh, and drawing in people that you disagree with but actually want to fight together, I think is crucial to the way forward for, with fighting the police bill or whatever. That we need to unite uh, with unions, with any MPs that will come together, with, with, with activists. Um, locally and nationally, to, against these things, and I think we can we can defeat them. I actually think we could defeat this police bill if it's approached in, a, in the right way. Um, I think it needs to be bigger than what we've done before, but that, that that's a massive start.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I've been Ben Smote, This is Matt Firth and Moag Livingston. Um, this is charged how the police tried to suppress protest. I have enjoyed it so much that I have posted it. It will be published on May the twenty fourth. May the twenty fourth. Uh, make sure you get it at all good bookshops. You can order it from Verso online, probably. Yeah, everyone's nodding. You can do that. Um, thanks again for joining us. Join us again when something else will be happening that I don't know,
0: but I'm sure it'll be good.